Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Unbound and Rewound Horror Podcast where we dive deeper into every horror book and movie for a closer look at their bone-chilling anatomy. I hope everyone is having a great start to the new month. If you celebrated July 4th, I hope you stayed safe. And if you didn't get a chance to listen to last week's episode, I'll give you a pass just this once. It was a long weekend of shenanigans, I assume. However, it is live and waiting for your ears. It was a fun episode on the Nightmare on Elm Street sequel and a great way to cap Pride Month. But... Do not think that the pride energy has disappeared with June. This is a podcast, not Target. Make sure you are following me on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at Your Horror Podcast for the latest horror content and podcast updates, such as what to expect for every new episode. You know, something I realize after I record all of these episodes or during my recording of these episodes that I never introduce myself. I listen to other podcasts and they're like, I'm so-and-so and I'm your host and I just jump right into it every single time. And I considered how some of y'all might not even know my name, my very first name. I did do like a, I did like an intro, I think, on one of my episodes. But I really should start introducing myself in these intros and I will work that in. So, late intro, I am Avery, your lovely host. I used to, okay, yeah, I used to introduce myself, but the thing is, is I felt like my intro needed a little bit more spice, needed a little bit more spice, because I just kept saying, like, I'm Avery, your lovely, your movie-loving, book-loving host, or something like that, and I was like, that's not good enough. I need something better, so I will work on that, um, and I'll come back with something fire, but for now... Hello, I am Avery. I am your host for this podcast, and I'm so excited to be talking with you all today. So before we jump into this week's movie, what are we streaming, what are we reading, and what are we watching? It is a new month, so that means that streaming services have uh, revamped their current collections. There are new things. I know HBO Max or Max has Cujo. If you've never seen Cujo you should watch it. It traumatized me as a kid. Um, Yeah. Thanks, Stephen King. Um, So they have Cujo. I don't know what all of the other streaming platforms have uh, added to their collections, but surely you all have updated your watch list with all of the new additions. So for me personally, oh, you know what? Actually, yeah. So There is, like, I don't know how long MGM has had their own streaming platform. I feel like it's fairly new. That's where the From show is on. Um, If you've heard of it on TikTok, it's the, like, newest horror show on the block. And so on that app, there is Bones and All, the Luca Luca Guadagnino uh, movie from 2022. And so I watched that recently oh wow what a powerful movie i can't believe i rated it a three and a half stars out of five on letterboxd that was insane of me i will own up to my mistakes um as long as you own up to your mistake if you have not watched it yet mgm is offering this like three month subscription this is not sponsored by the way i feel like i have to say that every single time But when it is sponsored, I will let y'all know. Because where are my sponsorships? Hello? I'm just giving these people free promo at this point. Ugh, I really need to stop. But, um, at least for me, I signed up for, like, I wanted to get a free trial. But instead, they offered me, like, three months for 99 cents a month. And then on the fourth month, it'll charge me, I think, like, $7 or something like that. So, for these next three months, I'm only paying a dollar for MGM+. Plus. And I will be watching Bones and All at least once a week until the fourth month. So, yeah, make sure you go get your free trial. Uh, check out Bones and All and check out From if you're looking for a new show to get into. Because they also just got renewed for a third season. So, it's, you know, and, and I feel like ongoing shows, shows that last longer than one season are very rare now. So, you re- like, you really want to sink your teeth into it 
while, while it lasts. I have watched From. I have not finished it. I have not made much progress on it. But that is because there's been a lot of other stuff going on. So, yeah, but I do have to pick that up. I finished Succession, so that is now off of my watch list. And now I have room to put From onto my watch list. Uh, what else? What other shows are there? The Bear. <laughs> oh my gosh. I freaking love The Bear. I love Jeremy Allen White. I have ever since Skins. Not Skins. I have ever since Shameless. And I watched The Bear when the first season came out last year. Fell in love. I binged it. Like, terrible decision because as soon as I was done, I wanted more. Every episode is just so beautifully done. Like, and well thought out the emotions of the characters you feel every single emotion especially anxiety i saw a tweet that said the poor man's succession and that's exactly what it is like that it is the poor the working class succession (laughs) so if you didn't like succession because of just like how like bougie and rich they were and like you need to check this one out because it is good um yeah and then insidious is coming out this week as you're listening to this maybe it's already out but it's coming out this thursday friday ish um so i'm sure a lot of you have plans to go watch it i am planning on doing a whole like binge of all of the insidious movies because i don't remember a lot of what happened in them that's me with every single movie so yeah i i'm excited to see that because i will be seated right front row not the front row because that hurts my neck but as close as i can get to the screen i will be there and i'm almost done with the last time i lied by riley sager after i finish that i'm gonna pick the clown in the cornfield back up because i do want to cover that next season next season will be all like it'll be like in the middle of fall and you all know that's my that's my favorite month I love fall and I love like I love curating content for the podcast during the fall because there is just so much to grasp on to. I get my clammy little hands on them. Make sure you let me know what you're streaming, reading, and watching by answering the Q&A. If you're listening on Spotify, you can answer that and let me know. You can also just you know, reach out to me on Instagram or TikTok. My DMs are open and available to you all. And I guess Twitter too. You can like at me. I don't think my DMs are open on on Twitter though. So yeah. But anywho, this week's movie that we are talking about, we are carrying on the the pride celebration. It might not be June, but we are still prideful on this podcast. Uh, And so we are talking about Sleepaway Camp. If you have not heard of this movie... That is because it's Sleepaway Camp, camp, like it is camp. (laughs) Um, It's a pretty well-known movie too, but I think because it came out around the same time as Friday the 13th, it came out after Friday the 13th, you already had Friday the 13th, like the summer camp horror movie, Sleepaway Camp, like I think it was interpreted that they were trying to do the same exact thing as Friday the 13th, so the reception of it was not the best. But over the years, the general opinion has changed. Not even necessarily the general opinion, but like it has just garnered its own little fandom, and most of those fans are gay uh, or a part of the LGBTQIA community because it resonates with them. And that is what I'm going to be exploring on today's podcast. So let's just, just dive right in head first, you know, Sleepaway Camp was released November 18th of 1983. It took five weeks to film starting in September, 1982 at the same camp in upstate New York that the director attended when he was a child. They had to ditch the storyboard that they had mapped out for the film when they realized the seasons were starting to shift too fast, which like for a summer camp movie, I, you know, I know things interfere with, with filming schedules and everything like that, but you want to film a, a summer movie at the start of fall, you can see in the movie the leaves are starting to change. It's no secret, but like, I don't know, you, you did that whole storyboard just to throw it out and to, you know, to just 
get a little whimsical with it because your timing was off. Sorry, I'm like being really aggressive in the beginning of this. Sorry, y'all. I just have a lot of feelings about this movie. But the runtime is an hour and 24 minutes. And wow, love that because it's such a quick watch. It's written and directed by Robert Hiltzik. Yes, Robert Hiltzik. I I wonder if he is Italian uh, only because this movie is so Italian. (laughs) Uh, That's no secret you watch it and you're like oh wow this definitely has to be in new york somewhere it's starring felicia rose mike kellen and jonathan tierston the budget for this movie was three hundred and fifty thousand dollars, but in the box office it made 11 million oh wow that's like the skin of marink effect i guess sleepaway camp did it before but there was probably predecessors to sleepaway camp that did it still i love movies that have such low budgets but then make it all back and triple it in the box office it's just so fun to see um and while it succeeded in the box office the reviews were not positive but you know what at the end of the day y'all might not have liked it but i still got your money so who's really winning in this case as time passed the film did grow a cult following and notoriety for its twisted shocking ending if you look up on youtube right now like watch mojo most twisted endings or most crazy like the craziest horror endings whatever you look it up that is going to be on one of them that's where i saw it for the first time was in a countdown of some sort of like you know the most shocking uh ending the most like whatever the scariest ending and i never thought to watch it um until last year before i chose to watch it last year I had only seen Sleepaway Camp 3. I could not tell you what it's about, though. However, I wasn't expecting how campy the original Sleepaway Camp was. Uh, The ending did get me, though, and watching it a second time really provided a different perspective. And I love watching it. I love showing it to people um, because of the ending. And also, it's like... You watch it the first time and it's like, oh, this is a bad movie. This is laughable, but also it's very problematic. But once you watch it the first time, for me at least, I want to watch it a second time because now I'm going to see it in a completely different lens. What remains divisive amongst viewers is what the film stands for in terms of gender identity and its similarities to Friday the 13th. And that's what I want to explore on this episode today is what it means to the LGBTQIA plus community, more particularly the trans community, as well as comparing it to Friday the 13th. And hopefully by the end, I can have some questions answered. But I do really want to stay kind of in between. I don't want it to come across like I have an opinion or a say on anything except for the comparisons between Friday the 13th and Sleepaway Camp because at the end of the day uh, the perception of this movie through the lens of the trans community is something I cannot speak on but I do still want to offer that information to you all because I feel like it's really interesting to hear about so let's just go ahead and dive in As societal views and opinions have evolved in America, around the world, and whatnot, the criticism for the film has too. Instead of all eyes being on its lackluster contribution to the slasher genre, audiences now criticize its representation of a transgender villain. Is this truly a queer film or not? When you watch Queer for Fear, for example, or, I mean, any, like... In any conversation revolving around queer horror, Sleepaway Camp is going to be brought up. Um, And it's really, like, I wouldn't say it's divisive. Like, people hold very, very strong opinions on it. But I will say that, like, it really is split down the middle in terms of how trans people feel about the movie. Um, Whether they do feel like it's an accurate representation or it's something that they can resonate with versus 
a terrible representation and something that like should not be looked at as revolutionary so to speak and so i i hope to have this answered by the end of the movie on whether it's a queer film just um a queer film in terms of the entire queer community if this is something that the entire queer community can deem a film of ours. So in trying to answer this question that I have, I have split the discussion up between harmful characteristics of the movie and positive characteristics of the movie. And I feel like by looking at those, it'll be like, "Mm, yeah, so this is bad and this is bad, but, you know, and I do think like, You can't ignore the bad parts of the movie. You simply can't. But you do have to take into consideration the time that it was made and other aspects of the movie that can come across as queer-coded. Therefore, that is what I'm going to address first. Sleepaway Camp is your standard summer slasher camp movie where there is a killer on camp and they're trying to find them. Um, It follows Angela and Ricky, who are cousins, as they go to this camp. Ricky has gone to this camp what seems like several years in the past. Um, This is Angela's first time at the camp. And so then all of these murders start to happen and you don't really know who it is, although you can kind of suspect it has to be either one person or the other because all of these all of these murders are kind of like acts of revenge and i will say it now um there are several spoilers ahead i wish that i could talk more about this movie without giving spoilers but i will also add that this is a movie i feel 100 percent okay with being spoiled because of the context and because like if you watch it without knowing what's like what's gonna happen your perception of it will be pretty negative and so i feel like this conversation may it may help you to approach watching this movie with a better sense of judgment or not even better sense of judgment that's not even the right word but like lack lack of a better word better sense of judgment i guess um so if you would like to stay for the spoilers by all means be my guest so glad to have you so glad you're staying and if you've already seen it and you're here for the discussion you're here for for business yeah yeah let's get down to it for the time the 1980s early 80s to be exact this very well could have been the first time someone had seen a trans character on screen. The film equates this experience of battling gender dysphoria with mental instability, and it lacks nuance that's needed for that kind of discussion in context. This visual media can come across as transphobic when some viewers may walk away from their viewing with negative opinions of trans people solely for the way Angela is depicted on screen. For queer audience members, especially in the 80s and 90s, to see queer representation on screen was scarce. And there's usually this understanding of quote-unquote, take what you can get. And it, I mean, it sucks, but we've also talked about the history of queer horror and how it's just so, it's, it's lacking a lot. And in order to get that representation, you really do have to like, pull whatever you can get pretty much and uh, reclaim it or take pride in it and that is changing now that we have entered this new era of cinema and tv where queer characters are able to just simply be queer without harmful um, without harmful stereotypes without harmful storylines but before like the last 10 years it was hard to find a 100% accurate representation of a queer person in horror particularly. However, compared to a film like Nightmare on Elm Street 2, audience members can't necessarily empathize and feel seen by Angela or the other queer aspects to the film upon their first watch. Some people can, too you know there um i talk about it a little bit um in like i talk about a little bit later in this episode but some trans activists slash writers 
you know, they do mention how they feel like the movie resonates with them. And there's certain things that I think as a cis person, I don't even recognize because I do not, I've never had that experience. Whereas trans people watching this movie can easily pick out things and pick up on um, body language and blocking and dialogue that is very similar to what they've experienced in life so far. So while some trans people do feel that way, some trans activists have stated Angela isn't even transgender, but someone who is forced to cross-dress. With the lack of nuance, there's not much to indicate whether Angela has feelings of dysphoria prior to living with her aunt. The film is honestly just a puzzle to look at through a queer lens because you can see how its foundation was intended to be homophobic and transphobic. However, in doing so, the portrayals and displays of queerness serve to be the complete opposite, which is just like Nightmare on Elm Street 2. I love when that happens because it's like you tried to do something and you failed and in your failure, we gained something. Like, ugh. Oh my gosh, I just, I love when marginalized people win. (laughs) Those are the biggest, you know, like harmful characteristics of the movie. But looking at the positive characteristics, as I mentioned before, you know, there's, there's the other side of the spectrum where trans activists have stated that it is steeped in queerness in comparison to other films of that time. Your first watch of this film will definitely end with a clear understanding of the transphobia slash homophobia. However, you give it another watch after you know the ending and your second watch, any watch after that will completely change your perspective. So when the film opens up and we meet Angela, her brother, and their dad, I think his name is like Peter or something maybe it's John I don't know either way you meet their dad um and even throughout the movie there are clips that suggest and actively show Angela's dad being a closeted gay man who has a lover who is very open about his lover with his children there's forced gender bending um and the men of the film are the ones that are showing the most skin. It's the opposing objectification of men that really stands out when horror is a genre that's founded on objectifying women. I, I, horror is my favorite genre, yes, and I wholeheartedly understand that the objectification of women has never been good, but that is the, you know, that's what horror was. Like, the first It's not the first horror movie, but it's the first movie that um, had the first-person perspective of the murders was Peeping Tom, and Peeping Tom was literally just objectifying women the entire time. And the, the tradition carried on with Halloween, Michael Myers killing his sister just butt naked in her room. Um, any teenagers having sex, kill them. Any, any woman nude, kill them. But you first gotta show them nude, but then you kill them. Like, it's like, what do you want? Do you want promiscuous women or do you not? The, the message is very unclear here. And upon this second, third, fourth watch, you come to realize that you're no longer watching the irrational fear of every conservative like the movie was on your first watch, but it's a coming-of-age story for a trans girl. She's not shy and quiet because she's quote-unquote psychotic, which is the way that they frame her out to be in your first watch and your initial perspective of the movie. She's just afraid of being outed, which is clear when her relationship with Paul starts to develop. She is very, um, it's, it's almost like she's walking on eggshells. Um, you can tell that she begins to grow more comfortable around him and she wants to open up to him, but at the same time, she is scared of opening up too much. She's scared of his reaction to it. Paul is just like kind of, you know what? We'll get to, we'll get to talking about Paul in a little bit. 
Uh, because that is a very interesting conversation too. So I won't talk too much on it. But Paul is not a character to be trusted and she understands that and I think that's also why she struggles um, to open up 100%. It more so becomes a story of childhood trauma and the trauma that's placed on children forced to live outside of their respective identities as well, which can go beyond the conversation of the trans experience. Like queer people in general can understand this perspective of you know being forced to act straight live a straight life when you that's not who you want to be um being forced to act like a you know to act like a christian and go to church and being forced into that religion when that's not who you want to be that's not what you want to do with your life like it can really apply to any of those any of those sectors these sleepaway camp believers that understand this movie to be steeped in queerness look at later movies in the franchise and take into account that Angela presents as a woman throughout each film using she her pronouns so while it was forced on Angela in the original movie Aunt Martha was just a catalyst for this gender identity discovery throughout this character relationship Angela's behavior can be seen as the harmful and violent results of forcing gender roles onto someone who feels outside of them. So I think like upon your first upon your first watch and to someone who is outside of the queer community who could be looking at it through a cis straight lens could understand this to be um, this woman is forcing this little boy to act like a girl, therefore she has now become psychotic because she doesn't want to be a girl but instead looking at it through a trans and or queer lens you see it as Angela just trying to Angela feels like she's still put in this box because maybe she wanted to be a girl you know maybe she did have those feelings that curiosity and Aunt Martha was a catalyst for those feelings Um, however, what if Angela didn't want to be the kind of girl that Aunt Martha is forcing her to be? It's, you know, it's still like, it's gender roles. Like, you know, you can be a girl, but not be a girly girl, a a pretty little girl. Like, you know what I'm saying? But that's what Aunt Martha wants. Like, Aunt Martha wants a doll. That's, that is what she wants. Um, and she's, so... Angela isn't having a psychotic break because of her gender identity. She might not be confused, but she's having a psychotic break because she has to keep it a secret. Keeping it a secret has ended up doing more harm than good, and I think that was that's her breaking point. At the start of the movie, you can tell that this is her first time going to this camp. Maybe she's homeschooled during the, you know, like during the school year, and so she doesn't have a lot of in-person interactions and that's why she's um she's so reserved at this camp and so being in such a large setting especially where you have situations where you have to wear bathing suits and you you you're wearing shorts and you're sleeping in a cabin with a bunch of other people these are all situations where you you're forced to be vulnerable it is just weighing on her, especially as she's growing a connection with Paul. Those are my harmful and positive um, characteristics for Sleepaway Camp. I will be revisiting them because I'm moving on to the comparisons now. But just just let that let that simmer in your mind for a little bit. I like I said, I tried to keep it a little balanced um, because I cannot form an opinion on whether this is a a trans representative movie or not but I can say whether it's a queer representative movie and that decision will be made I'm currently de- it's deliberating right now Sleepaway Camp was hated because it was not Friday the 13th it's often compared to Friday the 13th with the Jason Voorhees tale coming out only three years prior in 1980 
They both have strong qualities and balance each other out. While Friday the 13th may be strong in this factor, Sleepaway Camp is stronger in this factor. You know what I'm saying? Like, they just balance each other out. I don't see why they have to be competing. So, the slashing of the movies, right? Um, that is like the, that's something that all horror fans are going to look for in a movie is the slashing and the dashing. Uh, Friday the 13th follows teenagers who are played by adults whose only real crime is having sex, drinking, and being irresponsible on the job. It adheres to the horror tropes we're familiar with and helped to establish the slasher genre as we know it. Friday the 13th is like a son of Halloween. And so it's like, we've seen that story before. This is just a new setting and a new killer. Sleepaway Camp, however, bends this expectation by having a more clear revenge plot. Friday the 13th does have a revenge plot, but Mrs. Voorhees is not killing the teenagers and the kids who are responsible for Jason's drowning. No, she's just taking it out on every camp counselor that comes. In Sleepaway Camp, you see the harm done and the consequences of their actions take place, and no one is truly safe. There's no final girl and everyone is morally gray, and it really makes for a riveting watch because you, like, for me at least, it's like I see these people being assholes to Angela, and I'm like, yeah, I'm ready for you to die, and every single time, they die, and I'm like, yeah! yeah I don't know who's killing them I mean I I can suspect it because I don't know if I wasn't afraid of the consequences and people were bullying me I don't know maybe I would just push them down a flight of stairs and they both take place both of these movies take place at a camp setting sleepaway camp has a better camp feel to it while Friday the 13th is set at a campsite, the camp is only preparing to open. There are no campers running around. There's no camp activities. It's just the counselors drinking and sitting around a fire and playing music. Camp Arawak is open and full of campers in Sleepaway Camp. It contributes more to the nostalgic feeling of a campground, which I think is what Friday the 13th might have been going for too especially in the 80s, 90s, even early 2000s. Like, summer camps were a lot bigger. I don't think they're as big now. I mean, maybe they are. Maybe y'all are going to, to summer camps or y'all were going to summer camps. I only went once and it was a Jesus camp. So it's like, you know, going to summer camp was something that almost every single person had experience doing and seeing that in a horror movie and seeing in ways that something so fun as summer camp can be turned into something so horrendous it's like friday the 13th didn't really serve that relatability whereas sleepaway camp does the kills in friday the 13th are creative but it's all adults masking as teenagers, so it's no different from seeing Halloween or prom night or whatever the case is. Sleepaway Camp has a clear rubric for who's getting slashed, and age is not a contender. The kids in the film are real kids, and I think that drives the stakes a little higher for the viewers because... It's like kids are under this sort of protection role in horror. Not all the time, but a lot of the times they are. Like Halloween, for example, Michael Myers barely touched those kids. Like, did did not even get the chance to, like, dash his knife at them. No, most he did was walk towards them. And so it's like when a movie... When a movie decides to harm a child... Not saying children deserve harm, but I'm just saying because of how like horror movie rubrics have worked in the past when a movie decides to like completely throw that out the window and put a child in harm's way you know that like this is not going to be something like you've seen before both films are known for their respective characteristics the ones that i've already mentioned and others out there Friday the 13th, originally just a cheap cash grab post-Halloween 1978, sparked the summer horror demand that resulted in Sleepaway Camp. 
It's a beloved movie that anyone can recognize from the music score alone. However, Sleepaway Camp has the more iconic ending. For me specifically, the horror isn't in the fact that Angela is trans, it's everything else about the scene. The decapitation of Paul, the look on Angela's face, and the animalistic screeching as the camp staff observe her in her full, you know, form, it's it's an intense scene overall that no one can really forget about. Like, in preparation for watching this movie, I think I've watched it three times in the past, like, month, and, like, it has quickly become a movie that I do really enjoy. I love watching. Before, I didn't, you know, I didn't really care about it, but you do notice something different every single time, especially when I was looking at it from the perspective of, like, everything I've mentioned here. I was like, oh my gosh, yeah. Like, I noticed when I was just watching it as I was, like, before I recorded this, I was watching it, and as I was watching it, I noticed how, like, almost every single time that you see Angela um, in, like, you get a full frame of Angela, she has her hands, like, right in front of her, like, holding her hands right in front of her, um, which could very well be, like, a comfort thing because she is experiencing this gender, you know, this gender identity dysphoria. And I also noticed... What was the other thing? I feel like I noticed something else. Oh, yeah. I also noticed whenever she's in the cabin for the first time and that one girl, I don't know what her name is, Becca, maybe? Um, I She's, like, watching this girl who has blossomed over the past over the past year. She's watching her and the girl is like, hello. Like, pretty much she's like, do you have a problem? Why are you staring at me? But I'm like, maybe Angela is staring because she is, like, envious or she wishes she could be like her she wishes she could be more girly than her or something like that you know feel more comfortable in her femininity I don't know I'm speculating um these are not facts these are things to consider especially after learning how how they can relate to the queer and trans community Moving on to my likes of this movie, I actually do have a lot. I have a lot of likes and I have a lot of dislikes, which I feel like has been rare in the past, like, few episodes. I haven't had a lot of dislikes and likes, Um, so I'm excited to jump into them. I like what this film does for gender in terms of the horror genre. Before this film, every slasher, like, like, killing slasher was a white cis man it wasn't necessarily something that i viewed as a problem however having a trans girl as the antagonist and protagonist all in the same uh, is a valuable characteristic to this movie you also have the flipped gaze of objectification the 80s was known for slutty men with their short shorts and shirts however this was a whole new level of scandalous like i remember i was watching it i and I was looking at them shorts, I would not walk out of the house with those shorts or that crop top. Maybe, maybe the crop top. I don't know. It would depend on how high-waisted the pants were. (laughs) But they were like, they said crop shirts, low-rise shorts, low-rise cut-off jean shorts. They said, I am out for the summer. I am for the streets. Where's my munch? They were, they were playing ball, but like, I don't know. Anyways, yeah, the 80s fashion was was short shorts and crop tops, but mm-mm, mm-mm, not, not like that. They did something a little extra with that wardrobe. I like how movies such as this one were created to... Well, I, I kind of already said this, too, in the beginning, but I like how movies such as this one were created to be harmful towards the LGBTQIA plus community, but it actually has the opposite effect It does go to show how we have to grasp onto anything with representation, but it makes the history of cinema so much more thorough. And, you know, it does give you, I think it, it gives so much context to the history of it. And when you're looking forward and backwards, it's like, yeah, this was a queer film because this was kind of all we had. But now, in 2023, we have this movie, and, like, 
you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just so nice to be able to have those clear, those clear cut, like, pieces of a timeline. There's also a cathartic energy with this movie. Even on the first watch, as you watch the people who bully Angela get murdered, you don't have to be cis, trans, queer, like, it's like, if you're anti-bullying, you are going to feel so, like, you're going to be rooting for the killer, which is something that um, a lot of people love when a horror movie does it, because it's like, the serial killer has always been something made out to be, like, sinister. You don't want to root for the evil. You want to root for the final girl. But when the final girl or the final girl archetype is the evil, it's like, I have no choice but to but to root for her. You know, it's not just a bunch of random people like other slashers, as I mentioned in Friday the 13th, especially when the camp cook gets killed after trying to sexually assault Angela, you find yourself rooting for the killer because it's like, uh, yeah, he needed to die. <laughs> like, he needed to, like, as soon as you saw him on screen, you just wanted him to die because of the way he was talking about those girls. I want to throw up every time I watch it. I've never met a more unpleasant character that just like immediately as they come on screen, I'm like, no, I don't want to hear anything from you. I don't want to hear what you have to say. Like, no. The opening of this movie, though, is so beautiful and aged. Like, and when I say aged, I think I just mean like, you know how wine is aged and like, it's like the more like (laughs) when it's aged, it's really, really good. Yeah, that's what I mean. The opening is set to a scoring similar to Hitchcock's films. It's like a lot of violins and and whatnot. It all creates a familiar feeling of that transitional period between summer and fall, even though summer camp is not always like in that time that they just had five weeks to film. I also like how the opening pans across the closed camp before you know that it's closed and it creates a ghostly atmosphere with the backtracking of campers playing basketball, swimming, chatting, everything. And then it's finally revealed that the it says Camp Arawak and it says for sale. So it's like, yeah, it just, wow. It, it is a good opening. I really like it. My last like is uh, the way that the movie looks at gendered behaviors such as misogyny. And so, you know, I, ta- I mentioned Paul a little bit ago, and now we're back. We're back to him. Paul is similar to Bo Burnham's character in Promising Young Woman. And, uh, oh, wow, wow. I could quite frankly write an essay on this. It's really rare to see this kind of character in a film or a TV. And it always twists expectations because when you first meet Paul, you think he's going to be an ally, to Angela you think he is an ally to Angela and you're so happy for Angela when like the first time that she speaks and she says goodnight and then Paul is so happy that she spoke to him and said goodnight back and he runs away and like they're just both so happy and Angela like this is the first time that you're seeing Angela a little less on edge and then when he does not get what he wants, he suddenly turns his back on her. And uh, it's such a disgusting feeling. And it happens so much to people in real life, like especially when it comes to women trying to date men, you know, the person or like not even dating either. You, it can be like a platonic, uh, a platonic friendship or it can be dating, whatever it is, like, it's like, you meet a man who is, seems to be really, really nice, he says things that you completely agree with, he respects your boundaries, but then, like, one thing, one thing, he doesn't get what he wants from you, and then all of a sudden, like, he just turns on you and flips on you, and it's, like, complete 180, really scary, yeah, that's one thing that I really liked about Promising Young Woman is the way that it kind of twisted your expectations for that character specifically. For my dislikes, um, because this movie lacks the nuance needed, the structure of the movie really taints it. Only after you see the ending will your perspective suddenly shift on it. 
I love shocking endings, don't get me wrong, and I love a good twist. And I like this one because of how it caught me by total surprise. However, I don't like how the movie builds up to it and creates that harmful viewpoint. It's like, there's this killer, she's on the, like, they're on the loose, and like, you know, there's this really nice character who she, who like, tried to mend things with her and be nice to her and then she killed him and she was hiding this really big secret from everybody and she's just insane and it's like she had trauma (laughs) cue the jamie lee curtis quote trauma she had trauma 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 ptsd trauma generational trauma trauma uh and no one took that into account and i hate that of course you know it's it's a fictional movie no one is The characters don't have to be morally green. Um, The contrast between Aunt Martha and every other character is so stark and really hard to interpret as someone who, like, I don't know, sometimes, like, tones don't really connect with me. Like, I'll be really confused by the tone of, of a book or movie or song or whatever the case is. And I'm like, I don't understand what we're going for here. That's how I felt with Aunt Martha. The film alludes to the idea that she's mentally unwell, but otherwise she's just kooky. Like, there's no clear, like, you don't see her taking medication. You don't see her doing anything completely out of the normal. She just seems a little kooky. Her specifically, it amplifies the campiness of the movie. I think if Martha was not written the way she was, or maybe it was like the actor, the the actress who did it, I don't know. But like, if if Aunt Martha was not written the way that she was, and also her wardrobe and the house, like if all of that, if there were different choices made for that, I think that the film would not be interpreted as campy as it is. My last, don't, okay, and... I love Aunt Martha. Like, I really do. Her outfit, like, she is serving very, very hard. So, don't get me wrong. Like, I love her character. I just think, like, the the way that she's written did not match the rest of the, of the movie. And that's no fault to the actor. That's just the fault to the writer. No tea, no shade. My last dislike the cook didn't die the fry cook did not die he just suffered very very terrible burns but he lived and every man around him was complacent to his pedophilic remarks considering he was set to die i looked past it you know i was like he she is about to get him like he is about to get got he's gonna die like we have our retributions and then he didn't die and Something else that really bothered me is, I mean, whatever. It really bothered me because when the cook is coming out of the walk-in after Ricky and Angela, he's like clearly doing his, you know, like redoing his belt or, you know, fixing it or whatever. And the camp counselor is like, what's going on? And the cook is like, oh, nothing. While he's fixing his belt. And it's like the camp director just does not see it or looks past it. There's no way that you just looked past that, that you didn't see it. Ugh, I hate it. I hate it all. Now, to circle back, now that the deliberation has ended, is this a queer movie? As I've, you know, said a little bit throughout this episode, I hope that I didn't speak too much to the transsexuality aspect so much that I was speaking for trans people. I wanted to keep it a balanced discussion to give both viewpoints since I can't have an opinion on that matter. However, I can have an opinion on the overall queerness of the film. After examining its interactions with gender and sexuality, I deem it a queer movie. Some may be hesitant to say such because of suspected intentions slash subtext of the film. However, The way that the LGBTQIA plus community has embraced this film is all I need to categorize it as our film. It's all about reclaiming what can be ours. Maybe it was made to harm us, but by designating it a queer movie for the queer subtexts, it can no longer do harm. And that's what I love about it. That's what I love about that. I love when, like, 
we reclaim things that were originally made um, with like malintention. Same thing with when, you know, when it comes to the black community and reclaiming stuff within, you know, that was made to harm us. Like, I just, I love, because it's just, it's such a powerful move. It's literally such a powerful move. Because it's like, you can't make a movie like this anymore because it genuinely will not affect us respectfully. Like, you can try, but at the end of the day, it's probably still going to be gay. Like, you really, it's like, what's the, when you... When you try to do something so hard, but it has the opposite effect, like, uh, that is embarrassing. I will wrap up this discussion by saying I think you all should watch it. I hope that you did stay throughout this episode having not watched the movie, so now you can watch it with this in mind. However, I really do, like, the twist, I mean, I guess, I guess, like, there aren't too many spoilers I don't know. I, I'm really weird when it comes to spoiling old movies because, for one, it's been long enough. Like, if you haven't seen it up until this point, I don't know what to tell you. But at the same time, because the formulas for older movies are just so simple, it's like, am I really spoiling it? Like, we know what happens, you know? So, I don't know. I don't know. But anyways, um, I think you all should watch it. If you've already seen it, watch it again. <laughs> Uh, I hope I did give you something to think about in terms of queerness in horror um, and, you know, what it looks like to reclaim something that was once not for you, but it ended up being for you anyways. I actually, what did I rate this movie on Letterboxd? Let's see here. Or did I not rate it? No, I did. I had to sleep away camp. Oh my gosh, I have not rated it. Oh my goodness. Well, I'll say right here, right now, a live rating. I am rating it a three stars and I'll write a review for it later. But yeah, so I rated it a three stars out of five on Letterboxd. You can check that out and my review because by the time you're listening to this, I will have written a full review for it. You can see that at Avery C-O-F on Letterboxd. Um, if you are interested in my other movie thoughts, opinions, commentary, uh, I post stuff on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Sometimes I fall a little inactive on Twitter, especially now that the tweets are limited to 600. That's a terrible move, Elon Musk. Like, wow. That's a terrible business move, but you can find me on all those platforms at Your Horror Podcast because this is Your Horror Podcast, the podcast you turn to for all of your horror needs and desires. Next week, I will be covering The Last Time I Lied by Riley Sager, so make sure you, if you haven't read it, I, you can't read it, <laughs> you can't read it like this fast, um, but at least, you know, look it up, give it a little look-see, and uh, tune in next week for that book review. Thank you so much for tuning in to this podcast episode, and I hope to catch you next week. Bye! PhD in black cinema, sister soldier. Listen, I read my entertainment weekly, okay? I know my shit.